You're listening to What Does the Word Say, a series of podcasts on biblical theology produced by Grace and Glory Media. My name is Mark Roby, and I'm your host for this series. Our teacher is Dr. Richard Spencer. We're resuming our study of systematic theology today by continuing to examine Christology. In our last session, we started to examine Christ as King. He is the ruling sovereign of the kingdom of heaven. We noted that the first thing he must do for his subjects is to bring them into the kingdom, which requires that they be born again. We ended by noting that the next thing Jesus does is to rule his subjects, and he does that in part by giving them his Holy Spirit. Dr. Spencer, how would you like to proceed today? I want to spend some time looking into the very practical issue of how Christ rules in the life of every true believer. Well, that's certainly a challenging topic. We're told in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31, that whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God, which is an amazing statement. By mentioning mundane daily activities like eating and drinking, Paul was illustrating the comprehensive nature of the Lordship of Christ. Yeah, that's a very challenging verse indeed when you take it seriously, as all believers should. But there are other verses that are equally challenging. For example, in 2 Corinthians 10, verse 5, Paul tells us that we should take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. So we aren't even free to think what we want to think. Jesus is the Lord of my thoughts just as much as he is of my actions. We could also say that he is the Lord of our emotions. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 31, we're told to Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling, and slander, along with every form of malice. That's true, and perhaps even more surprising to people, God also commands us to love. Biblical love is not a mushy feeling, it is a determination to do what is best for someone. When Christ was asked which commandment is the most important, we're told in Mark twelve twenty nine through 31 that he responded by saying, The most important one is this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. It's interesting to note that there is nothing new about these commands. Jesus was quoting from the Old Testament. That's true, but we must again pause to think and be serious about the meaning of these words. We are commanded to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. No one does that. And we are commanded to love our neighbor as ourselves. No one does that either. We are all guilty of violating the two most important commandments every single day. That's a bit disconcerting. I agree, but it's important for us to see just how far short of meeting God's requirements we fall. Sin is not a little problem. It is immense, and we are utterly incapable of solving it ourselves. As a result, Christians need to realize how serious the kingship of Christ is. We have been saved, but we are in the process of being transformed. If that is not a present reality in your life— then you have not been saved. And our transformation is serious work that occurs under the rule of Jesus Christ the King. And the fact that we are in the process of being transformed is clearly stated in the Bible. 
For example, in Romans chapter 8, verse 29, we read, For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, Paul wrote that, We who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Those are both great verses, and it's a very important point. Modern Christians often seem to think that once you're saved, the, the work is over, and you just go on living your life the same old way. But that is not at all the biblical model. Our lives are to be controlled by God and lived for a purpose. We should be constantly changing, not standing still. Paul wrote in Philippians 3.10, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. But then he wrote about the constant effort that's required to know Christ this way. He went on to say in verses 12 through 14, Not that I have already obtained all this or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Jesus Christ took hold of me. Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. It's amazing that even the Apostle Paul did not consider himself to have attained this knowledge. He also wrote about being transformed in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, where we read, Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. And we see in that verse that our minds must be transformed. As I said earlier, we can't think whatever we want to think. We must learn to think and act biblically. And this transformation, which is called being sanctified, is not optional. There is a very common but completely unbiblical idea out there that you can accept Jesus as your Savior, but not have him as your Lord. People who hold this view would say that it's good to have Jesus be your Lord, but that isn't essential to salvation. That's been called the Lordship Salvation Controversy. It has, and, and we will spend more time on it at a later date, but it's an incredibly important point, and we need to talk about it now to some extent, because far too many people have accepted the idea that you can pray a prayer and be saved no matter how you then live. But praying a prayer doesn't save anyone. Only Jesus saves. But Jesus only saves in the way the Bible describes. You must be born again. And if you are born again, you are a new creation and your life will be different. You won't be perfect and you cannot earn any part of your salvation. But if you haven't been changed at all, then you haven't been saved. And praying a prayer does not in and of itself change you. Yeah, I would say that even one person being deceived by this false gospel is one too many. And I would agree. Now, you mentioned earlier that Christ was quoting the Old Testament when he spoke of the two greatest commandments, and I think it will be instructive to look at the Old Testament to get a better understanding of the comprehensive and serious nature of the Lordship of Christ. Christ actually quoted from two Old Testament passages, and I want to look at just the first because it's the most important. 
I'm sure that you're referring to Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5, where Moses commanded the people, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. That's right. The Jews consider this passage to be one of the most important of all in the Old Testament. They refer to the first verse, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, as the Shema, which is the first word in the Hebrew text for that verse. The word means to heed, listen, and obey. Moses said this to the people after he had given them the Ten Commandments, which we read in both Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5. The people were terrified by the sight and sound of Moses meeting with God on top of Mount Sinai, And we read in Deuteronomy 5, verse 27, that they told Moses, Go near and listen to all that the Lord our God says. Then tell us whatever the Lord our God tells you. We will listen and obey. And Moses did tell them everything God commanded him to say, but the people did not listen and obey as they said they would. No, they didn't, and their disobedience brought great trouble. But I want to emphasize what Moses said to them. Right after telling them to love the Lord with all their heart, soul, and strength, we read the following in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 6 through 9, quote, These commandments that I give you today are to be upon your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates, unquote. Yeah, that certainly makes it clear that God's commands are important, and we are to be very serious about knowing them, keeping them, and passing them on to our children. This also reminds me of one of the last things Moses told the people before God called him home. In Deuteronomy chapter 32, verses 46 and 47, we read that Moses said, Take to heart all the words I have solemnly declared to you this day, so that you may command your children to obey carefully all the words of this law. They are not just idle words for you. They are your life. By them you will live long in the land you are crossing the Jordan to possess. And it is extremely important for Christians to understand that God's law is still important for us today. We must properly balance two biblical strands of teaching. First, we must boldly proclaim that no one will be saved by keeping the law, as Paul clearly tells us in Romans 3 and elsewhere. For example, in Galatians 2 verse 16, Paul wrote that, We know that a man is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ, and not by observing the law, because by observing the law, no one will be justified. And so the rallying cry of the Reformation was that we are justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And that statement is absolutely correct, which is to say it's biblical. The biblical view is opposed to the Roman Catholic view of salvation, and all other views that give man any of the credit for his own salvation. But there is, as I said, a second strand of biblical teaching that has, to a very significant extent, been lost in the modern Protestant church world. That strand is that obedience is absolutely essential to salvation. But before everyone turns us off for being heretical, 
Let me point out that I said obedience is essential for salvation, not justification. Well, those two words are often used more or less synonymously. They are, but salvation is a more general term, which refers to the whole process, while justification is quite specific and refers to a single event. In a theological sense, to be justified means that God has declared you to be just based on your being united to Christ by faith. Our justification is based on Christ's merits alone, not ours. But the only way we can be united to Christ by faith is if we have been born again, which is what enables us to believe. And if we have been born again, then we are new creations, as Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 17. We are not the same old person, and we will not, therefore, behave the same old way. That seems like a perfectly obvious statement. I think it is, yes. And if we have been born again, we love Jesus Christ. And we're told in John fourteen fifteen that Jesus said, quote, If you love me, you will obey what I command, unquote. Our obedience is not in any way meritorious. In other words, our obedience is not in any way a reason for our justification. We are not justified because we obey. We obey because of our new nature, which is also why we believe and are justified. The cause of our faith and the cause of our obedience are the same. Paul wrote in Ephesians 2.10 that we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. And Jesus Christ himself said, as we read in Matthew chapter 7, verse 21, that not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. That is a clear statement that just saying Jesus is Lord will not save you. Your life must demonstrate that it is a true statement. You must demonstrate that you are, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.17, a new creation. In other words, you must do the will of the Father in heaven. Look at what is often called the Great Commission. In Matthew 28, verses 18 to 20, we read that Jesus told his disciples, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. We are to teach people to obey everything Jesus commanded. No one will earn his salvation by doing so, but anyone who has truly been saved will do so. If we say that obeying Christ is somehow optional, that he can be your Savior without being your Lord, then we eviscerate every command in the New Testament. They all become mere suggestions. Now, our obedience is never perfect, of course, but if our new nature doesn't manifest itself in new behavior, then our nature isn't really new at all. We are the same old sinner headed for hell. I'm reminded of what Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 28, that he who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with his own hands, that he may have something to share with those in need. Paul clearly expected true believers to lead changed lives. And getting back to Jesus serving as our king, that changed life is characterized by obedience to our king. We are to obey everything he commanded. Martin Luther wrote that, quote, Our faith in Christ does not free us from works, 
but from false opinions concerning works, that is, from the foolish presumption that justification is acquired by works. That's a great quote. I think people often have the mistaken idea that Martin Luther was opposed to saying anything about Christians having good works. But that quote makes it clear that he was only opposed to thinking that works were in any way the basis for our salvation. That is the critically important point. We'll talk much more about salvation later when we get to the topic of soteriology. But I think we've said enough for now, and I want to get back to looking at Christ as king. As Christians, we are to live obedient lives, and God provides the Holy Spirit to help us do that. First, of course, the Holy Spirit is primarily responsible for causing us to be born again, as we read in John 3, verses 7 and 8, where Christ said, You should not be surprised at my saying, You must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. That is the essential first step in our being saved. As we've said, we must first be brought into God's kingdom for Christ to be truly our King. And the second thing the Holy Spirit does for us is to enable us to understand the Word of God. Not perfectly or without any work on our part, of course, but without the Holy Spirit, there's no hope of properly understanding the Word. We read in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 14, that the man without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them, because they are spiritually discerned. That reminds me of what Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 1, and verse 17. He said, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. The Holy Spirit dwells in every true believer to give us greater knowledge of God and his word and to enable us to obey. We're told in Romans 8 verse 14 that those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. The Greek verb translated here as led is a present tense verb, meaning that the action continues, which is why the Reverend P.G. Matthew renders the verse, Those who are being led by the Spirit of God, they and they alone are the sons of God. But even true Christians don't always follow that leading perfectly. No, regrettably we don't. The Holy Spirit illuminates our minds to understand the Word of God. He provides an internal rebuke when needed, and he gives us the power necessary to obey. But he doesn't force us. Paul warns us in Ephesians 4.30 to not grieve the Holy Spirit of God which of course implies that we can grieve the Spirit. And while I look forward to examining further how the Holy Spirit leads God's children, this seems like a good place to break for today. So I'd like to remind our listeners that they can email their questions and comments to info at whatdoesthewordsay.org, and we'd love to hear from you. You've been listening to What Does the Word Say, brought to you by Grace and Glory Media. And I'm Mark Roby. In our next session, Dr. Spencer will continue to examine biblical Christology, and we hope you'll join us. The session you heard today is available, along with all other sessions, in the archive on our website at whatdoesthewordsay.org. We also have a free book available to you entitled Good News for All People, written by Rev. P.G. Matthew, 
founder and senior minister of Grace Valley Christian Center. To request your free copy of this excellent summary of the biblical message of salvation, go to whatdoesthewordsay.org.